Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. This is episode 198 of our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the kinky cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we present Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, author of The Polyamorists Next Door. Here's your hosts, Woody and the Beast. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. Sitting next to me is the Beast. We don't have anybody in the studio this week. No, the chair is empty, but I think we could have filled it up, but uh, we didn't know in time. Well, yes, our guest is rather local. Rather nearby. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But, you know, I was reading Newsweek, of all things, and they're talking about hacked butt plug can be controlled from anywhere. And from anywhere is in quotes. Everybody that has listened to the show, I'm sure, has heard about teledildonics, which is the next wave of things. That's where you uh, send your lover a, a, a toy, they put it in, and then you pull out your phone and control it from a continent away. Well, that's all good and fine. It uses a protocol called BLE, which has been said to be the worst security protocol ever written. And so uh, people hack into this and um, control your butt plug for you, which sounds like fun, huh? Well, uh, that's anonymous uh, taken to a new level. The Internet of Things is such an interesting place, though. It is. And there, and I've, I've heard this about many things, that almost no security on your light bulbs or your whatever. But now but now it's getting personal, isn't it? It is. It, it just took a giant leap. Yeah. It, it is one thing for your lights to change to moody blue uh, without your, your, your reckoning and quite another for your butt plug to all, all of a sudden hit high speed. That does have something to do with reckoning also. Yeah. I can imagine some, uh, some business meetings are going to get really interesting. As they launch <laughs> off the table. Who's that laughing in the background? <laughs> Dr. Eli here, Dr. Elizabeth Chef. Hey, Doc. Hey there. Welcome, welcome to the Kinky Cast, Dr. Eli. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. You have uh, a, a little experience in a couple of fields because you have a, a doctorate in uh, psychology, right? Sociology, actually. Sociology. Okay. And a few other uh, recognitions go along with that? Yes, I'm uh, certified by ASECT, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, as a sexuality educator. I was also a court-appointed special advocate in Atlanta for eight years. And uh, I haven't picked that back up since I've moved to Chattanooga recently, but um, and I'm traveling so much right now that it's hard for me to be as around as much as those court cases need. But it's something I did in the past. Your work has led you to do quite a bit of research with the poly communities, haven't it? Yes, I started studying polyamory in 1996 
And in 2016, I started the fourth wave of data collection for my ongoing study of polyamorous families with children. 96, so we have, what is that? That is 21 years, so we got a whole generation you have studied. Yes, in fact, some of the people I talked to, I met them when they were in preschool, and now they're graduating from college, and I'm kind of getting a a long-term look at what they think, you know, comparing it to what they said when they were 12 and then 17, and now they're at like 25. And these longitudinal studies are are not very common in the poly realm, are they? You know, they're not very common anywhere. They're incredibly difficult to maintain. To study something over the long term, ironically, is the ideal in terms of family systems to see how things are over time really gets a kind of a a long-term impact on people like aging. I'm also finding really interesting how they affect young people who grow up in them. And then people who grow old in them. It's the only study that I am aware of that looks at polyamorous families with children in the United States. And certainly the only longitudinal study of polyamorous families at all. The only other person who studied polyamorous families is Maria Pallotta Chiaroli, and she looked at how they interacted with schools in Australia in 2010, but she's moved on to other things since then. And that sounds like a very narrow study then that uh, just took a snap snapshot of what was happening at the moment. Yes, and it makes sense because she is an educational expert. So she looks at schools in general. 96. That's so far back. Many of our listeners have weren't even born back then. Or <laughs> no, it's crazy. We're not aware. So what drew you to poly research in, in that period? When I was 22, I met this man and surprised myself by falling in love with him. Uh, because I had been with mostly women before that and was surprised to take a man seriously. Oh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And he said that he never wanted to be monogamous and never wanted to get married. And at first I was like, whatever, I don't care. You know, you're temporary. But then once I was in love with him, I was like, wait a minute, this is actually seriously freaking me out now. What do you mean? What does life look like without that? What, how, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? So as an intellectual, I intellectualize things that frighten me. And he kept kind of really talking about it a lot. And I ran into kind of accidentally a group of people who were talking about it also when I was in graduate school and started kind of mostly hanging out with them as just interesting people like, hey, you seem to be able to do this. When he says to me he wants multiple partners, I hear you're too fat and you're bad in bed. But you don't seem to hear that. What do you hear and how do you how do you do this? You know, this is totally freaking me out. So after about two years of that, 
I was like, well, you guys are really interesting. I don't think anyone has studied this. I'm in graduate school here for sociology. This just kind of fell in my lap. Okay, I'll check it out. Let's back up a step further. You sound like that you come from what many Americans do, a rather traditional background. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Ah, okay. No, I was raised by hippies among the lesbians. <laughs> I okay. would not call That's not traditional at all. That is a tradition at all. So no. you so you had a little more expansion in the ideals and thought processes already. Yeah, certainly in terms of being comfortable on the margins of society. For instance, before I met this guy that I ended up doing this 15-year poly thing with, or not mostly monogamous, hardly poly at all, poly for five minutes and the rest of it fall out. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, it was bad, seriously bad. But I was used to, like one of my first memories, I think, is when my mom loaded my sister and I into her VW bus. It must have been like 1973, maybe, which would have made me like three. Um, and took us out to Oregon to check out the Rajneesh camp out oh, there. Oh, wow. And she, we stayed there for at least a month, probably six weeks. I don't totally remember, except that everybody was wearing orange. And um, she was like, you know what? Fuck this. It's still the women doing the dishes and the men talking to each other while the women cook. I'm sick of that. Let's just go back to Colorado. We don't need this bullshit. <laughs> And so around the country you went. Yeah. And just in general, she was, she was a very young mother whose husband had died in Vietnam and was kind of on her own with two little kids and was like, let's see what happens here. It's 1973. <laughs> you know, let's check out the world. Fast forward to undergraduate and you meet this poly man and he sparks something and you both, you know, neither of us knew the word poly. It wasn't even a conception that had to be like 1992, maybe 93, something like that. I had never heard it, certainly. But we talked about it a lot, not really knowing what it was. He talked about it. And I dragged my heels. <laughs> At first. Yeah, um, The whole time. The whole time. The whole time. I never wanted to do it, and that was a key signal to him that he shouldn't be pushing it so hard because it just never turns out the way you think it's going to. He had this fantasy. He was the total unicorn hunter. He had this fantasy of me and another woman having a little happy family with children and, you know, the three of us together. And when it was a dude, he couldn't deal uh, so multiple standards, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, that double standard, dicks are not allowed or pussy isn't allowed or I hear all sorts of rules that just are very self-serving for one partner or the other. And the worst of it is, I hear he, he told my kids that I cheated on him <laughs> because I kissed someone else. He's He's had sex with other people during the relationship and it was really not a big deal, but I kissed someone who was not a woman, and that means I cheated on him. Yeah, the rules aren't equal here. 
No. Wow. Uh, wait a minute, Woody. No surprise I left his ass. Woody, we are talking to Dr. Eli's a woman. Yeah. And we do know that women are not full citizens. Right. In this That's country. right. Oh, I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me. Yeah. Uh, is it, uh, it three-fifths or did you achieve four-fifths? Anyway, you know I'm about seven fifths myself. I would have to say. Oh wow, you're you're compensating. Compensating. So you are in grad school, and was this your graduate project? Uh, yeah, my dissertation, which I finished for them in 2005, and then published as a book with the other with two more waves of data, um, and called that the polyamorous next door. I'm also going to write a couple more books from this wave of data collection I'm doing right now, one on the children and then one on aging. What is the polyamorous next door? Is there such a creature? <laughs> well, it yes, especially if you live in a city or a suburb. If you are a rural dweller, you know, living, if if your population density is quite low, then you might not have a polyamorous next door because they often prefer to live in cities where there are other people they can meet and date and hang out with. And rural areas make it only, you know, more difficult to find people open to polyamory, but also more exposed when you do because people recognize each other's cars more and see them parked in front of each other's houses overnight. And, you know, if you're under more scrutiny, it's more dangerous, potentially. And miscues, uh, flirting where you shouldn't flirt can have some definite right. ramifications when exactly. in, in that small rural, because I grew up rural. So you're saying the urban, now how come? And suburban. Suburban, well. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, like here. Like here, yeah. <laughs> what what is do do we have numbers or percentages or You know, unfortunately, it's super super hard to say to answer that question for two reasons. First, it's hard to know who to count. Are you only talking about people who identify with the word polyamory? Then that's a fairly select population. If you're talking about people who have consensually non-monogamous relationships where people know they have multiple partners and they know it and they're maybe not calling it polyamory, but they're doing it openly and everybody's negotiated it, that is a much wider population. So everything but the word poly. Yeah. Well, where to draw that line is incredibly difficult. And it's kind of like the census forms where you get, yes, get all these yeah. boxes and trying to put somebody in a box and none of the above, none of the above. Right. And there is no census. In fact, um, I, in 2005, I started this group, the poly researchers with um, peppermint and cascade spring helped me with the technical end. We uh, talked endlessly about what the, definition is for the past 10 years at least of that and it's just it's very difficult but we tried to get a question on a, a representative survey that would go out to the entire united states like a, a portion of representation of the u.s and we they rejected it they were like uh no we have 
hundreds at least, if not thousands of questions to sift through. And this one is just way too specific. No, we're not asking about consensual non-monogamy. So there went our chance to, to measure. The thing is, it, it could be any number of things from, you know, uh, alternate lifestyle. Uh, there's all kinds of euphemisms that go with this. Right. And some swingers have relationships that look to me like polyamory, and some of them have much more compartmentalized relationships. So with swingers, you got to be careful. You know, they're not allowed to love somebody else. You know, <laughs> well, there's rules. Some of them maybe haven't gotten that memo. I don't know. <laughs> I know a lot of them that didn't get that memo. <laughs> I had a question about the um, the kids that you talked to when um, years ago when you were doing this. They were into the idea of having multiple parents? Um, You know, not so much, ironically. They don't tend to view the other adults in their lives as parents. No. They tend much more to view them as more like aunt or uncle figures, much more kind of adult-supporting cast, kind of, with a little bit more distance, not quite able to exert the same kind of disciplinary influence. And I have to say those other partners are also not that interested in being a disciplinary source either. They're like, nah, I let the, I let the parents handle that. I'm like, I get to be the nice guy. <laughs> I get to be the the friendly cop. <laughs> so then <laughs> as the kids cop. get older and you talk to them in later days, like in high school, do they think they want to continue the poly lifestyle? You, that is such a good question. Some of them are like, of course, that and more. Um, almost the entire lot of them identify as pansexual, which is a very broad category, even if most of their sexual experiences are heterosexual. That's only kind of so far in their minds. They're young, they're evolving, they're figuring things out. They're open to everything until further notice, basically. That's certainly a portion of them. Um, most of them, I would say, are like, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm still trying to find 14. I'm trying to figure out, do I use my tongue when I kiss and how much? You know, like, the whole poly thing is way beyond where I even want to think about it. Well, at that age, you know, puberty is raging and hormones are starting and all that. But once they get further into high school and things, it starts to settle out of what they really want out of sexuality. Um, You know that what they want out of sexuality is fluidity. They don't call it a thing. They don't label it. They're doing what they're doing. And if that happens to be elbow this week, then it's elbow. And they're not calling it polyamory, you know, or maybe so maybe it's one of their descriptors. But it's not this overarching, even if they're practicing it, it's just what they're doing at the moment. They're not, I, you know, taking it on as a, as a box that categorizes them in the way their parents did or in a way their parents had to, to make it into a thing at all. And I imagine that there is some connection between pure peer pressure and the perception of those around them on how open and aggressive they are about uh, pursuing these poly situations. Because peer pressure is so important at that point. 
you know, most of their peers are also in very fluid relationships. People don't date in a way the way they used to. They more hang out in groups and cross-pollinate and, you know, certainly a more, a smaller, more conservative, especially more religious group does date very carefully or very blatantly does not date until a certain point. But for most other people, it's a lot less defined and they just kind of do their thing and don't call it anything. So their peers are also having these undefined relationships, sometimes openly non-monogamous, sometimes cheating, sometimes it's not clear, but not a lot of people are expecting monogamy in as the default in their generation. It's something to be negotiated and considered, and it's one of the choices, but it's not the default, certainly for the kids from the polyamorous families, and it's not the default for their peers either. This is most intriguing coming as I am from a born in 64. Right. I am a little older than you, so the values are even more traditional. You date it. Add rural to that. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So so, uh, I'm an odd bird, I guess. But you broke the gravity field and evolved into something completely different. Speaking of which, if we look at the young people, and, and as you say, monogamy is more of a negotiating point, one of the data points on the curve as opposed to the standard. And then you mix in the traditional, and and you can read that however you want, monogamous only people. And when they start to mix it up, it starts to get interesting. It's more like a weather front at that point. There's going <laughs> to be thunder and lightning. Absolutely. But even the the more traditional people, unless they also were including religion with their family, I think that is the thing that really changes things. Even if if the parents are traditional, but not necessarily actively religious, then those kids are going to be swept up in their peer flexibility. What I see in my data is a glint lack of traditional religion. It seems to make a huge difference in these families. Most of them either have no religion at all, is the dominant category, or they have kind of more fringe religions like paganism is dominant, then comes Unitarian Universalism, then Buddhism, then Judaism, then Christianity in my data. Down at the bottom. Wow. Yeah. So that appears to have a really significant influence on what the kids think too, because the kids in these pagan polyamorous families that occasionally attend Unitarian Universalist services, you know, send their kids to the UU camp for the sex education, which is, I have to just give a quick shout out to UU sex education for kids is totally righteous. Awesome. Check it out. If you're a parent of 18. Good advice. Yes. You know, the kids in those families are growing up learning to question things and hearing their parents cop to making mistakes because Family's complicated. You make mistakes, especially in polyamory, 
you know, if three partners are telling you, honey, pretty much fuck that up, it's hard to pretend that you didn't. (laughs) So the kid is used to, you know, kind of a more collective discussion where adults are held to account as well and not just do this because I said so, but a much more kind of communicative, collaborative negotiation is characteristic of the family in polyamory and in those more kind of woo-woo religions, I guess. I don't know. That's kind of a mean way to say it. How best to say it? More alternative religions. Non-traditional religions. Non-traditional, yes. You know, here we are in the Bible Belt. Uh, you, right. You too in the great south of the United States, which is a very fundamental, traditional Christian society here. We have people that have been raised by very religious parents, and they've come up, they've found their sexuality, they decide they like sexuality, they decide they try polyamory, and then all of a sudden, all the programming as a kid starts to get overwound and something happens. And I've seen this several times to where they pull back because of their uh, childhood religion upbringing. Absolutely. I mean, shame is real. There's a lot of shame for even conventional sexual desire in religion, even conventional bodies. Like, seriously, you don't want people to masturbate? That's like the lowest bar ever. (laughs) If they can't even masturbate, then they can't have like just regular sexual selves. They're not allowed to waste the seed. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, generally, if you're, if you're sex positive enough to consider kink or polyamory or anything like that, then chances are good you've got a handle on masturbation at minimum. You know, you've dealt with that, but maybe not. Maybe you still feel bad about that. And then adding in polyamory, adding in other things, it's just, you know, the shame can get to be Really uncomfortable for some people, especially if they feel like they're under surveillance, if other people will notice, or if they will be outed somehow against their will, which again points to smaller, more rural communities, you know, you're, you are under more scrutiny. Dr. Eli, do you want to make a projection about what happens when this group of up-and-coming children take the mandals and our 40s and our running society. We have seen it over and over when we saw all of the movie reboots from the toys of the 70s. Now, <laughs> that, are we going to see a, a shift in society in another 20 or so years as uh, this group has taken their mantle of leadership? You know what I unfortunately see is increasing polarization with some people in a conservative backlash to what they see as kind of the erosion of the traditional family, the only traditional patriarchal family, which way they actually tend to interpret incredibly narrowly. But they are right on one level that polyamory is about sexual freedom for women. That's what makes it different from all the other forms of plural marriage in the past 
and in other societies right now. So those people who are like, oh shit, this harkens the end. It certainly harkens the end for one version of patriarchy. This is on the menu now for women. Non-monogamy has always been on the menu for men in any society you can name. Wealthy men have had multiple women. It's just a given. Whether it was discussed or just the head was turned the other way. So you see this, uh, this among many issues as polarizing, hard to predict what the future is going to hold. But I, I think more and more people are seeing monogamy doesn't necessarily work long term. This till death do us part worked much better when we died in our 40s. You know, now we're living so much longer. It's not that feasible. We don't do anything that long. I mean, people used to graduate from high school and get a job and be at that job until they retired with a gold watch. Nobody expects that anymore. Nobody. These, you know, people graduating from high school have had seven jobs by the time they graduate. It isn't a desirable thing to even stay with the same employer for all that time. So why would it be desirable to stay with the same Spouse, we have a president that is working on his third marriage. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't even count all the pussies he's grabbed on the side. You know, you didn't say that. Oh, that's locker room (laughs) talk. You don't believe that really, do you? (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure I saw footage of it, in fact. Well, I am quite sure that it occurred myself. Do you think that we'll ever, we're coming into the 2020 census. And we definitely won't be talking about complex family arrangements in the 2020 census. Do you think by the 2030, we may have decided that we need to broaden our perception of marriage as a society? You know, I think what would be more useful even is to de-emphasize marriage as a whole. Marriage is one way to organize families, and it works great for some people, but a lot of people already don't get married. That's not the way they live. People cohabit. They have children and then they break up. They never even intend to be together. They have children by themselves. They live with their siblings. You know, there's a zillion other ways to be. And marriage is already only one of the menu choices. That's just going to become more blatantly obvious as, for instance, The percentage of people who identify as single, you can't see my air quotes, but I'm, I mean, in that they're not married, but they have like rich and intense relationships with people and they maybe they're not married, but it doesn't mean they're like sitting alone in the closet in the dark, you know, like a lot of people in a way that they never were before. We have an entire new crop of people who can and can be single in a way. It just wasn't economically or you couldn't live as a single person in the 1400s. You had to be part of a collective. It's still a problem because society still has problems with health insurance on non-married right. couples. You know, in some cases they're very progressive, but not in most. And society is still dictating this family unit thing that uh, the religious right has pushed for many, many years. So they're keeping us stuck in that. And when you get into governmental issues, being married to a heterosexual person 
is the choice as opposed to cohabiting and that sort of thing. Well, what what I see is when we went for same-sex marriage, we call it same-sex marriage. We call it marriage equality. We call it many things, and always with the word marriage in there, that institution is deeply, deeply rooted in our culture. It is, and it's a way for us to understand, okay, this is a very important person. That's what it's come to signal. By the number of wives. (laughs) Maybe not. You know, like this person and I can share all sorts of stuff legally and financially as seamlessly as possible. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Or this person can help me immigrate or something like that. Like, it's not if it ever was about, I mean, well, in a way, it is about love. Because certainly then once the love is gone, people are like, all right, I'm not attracted to you anymore. We should get a divorce. (laughs) We're done. (laughs) We're going to see a a little bit of a revolution here. Because the baby boomers that are getting older now, and especially if they have any poly in them at all, they're starting to group together to take care of each other with medical right. conditions and that sort of thing. I am a baby boomer, and I am older than him, uh, the beast. I'm a baby boomer, too. And I've had friends over here at the house and nursed them back to health for over a period of months. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of this as we go on, and it, it's uh, codependency. Aha, uh-huh. yes, but not in like an, an addictive framework, but like a you help me, I'll help you. Yes, absolutely. Interreliance. Codependency has such a negative connotation, but I agree. If we can't depend on each other, then what the fuck? Well, and especially if you love somebody and you've known them for years. I just made contact with a friend of mine that I met in junior high school and I I will tell you that the number is staggering the number of years that I've known her. And we've been very close for that whole time. Interesting. You know, so I've, I've noticed a similar thing among most of my parents in my study. Lots of them are Gen Xers and they are, they have faced some significant financial hardships which have forced them to create these kind of shared housing situations almost in a way that they used to be in their twenties. They were doing a more poly shared housing thing. And now in their late forties and their fifties, they're shared housing because these are the people they can stand to live with and they can't afford to live by themselves. Well, the Gen X was the generation that was the first generation that was not expected to do as well as their parents and several hundred years right and it sucks let me tell you <laughs> well yeah uh while, while being a boomer i also fall into you know how these categories over overlap. Right, yes. i'm a gen xer too absolutely it's been fascinating dr eli thanks it's been really fun chatting with you too as we start to wind it down i, I need to ask you a couple things so we've absolutely. talked about one of your books which is the polyamorous next door I have two others as well. One is Stories from the Polycule, which is an edited volume of stories written by people in polyamorous relationships, kind of a snapshot into their daily lives, the good and the bad. It's really interesting, actually. It's kind of fun, lighter. The first one, uh, The Polyamorous Next Door, it's the results from 15 years of research, the first three waves of data collection. So it's It's heavy. It's academic. 
I tried to write it light, but it's got research results. <laughs> the second one, the stories from the polycule is a lot lighter. The third one, when someone you love is polyamorous, that one is super skinny. It's like the research distilled down with no citations, no extra fluff at all. It's like, this is what polyamory is. This is who does it. And this is why, and this is how it impacts them. Like super, you could read it in one sitting and it's designed for people who are not in polyamorous relationships themselves, but have either children in polyamorous relationships or parents in polyamorous relationships or clients or, you know, for poly people to come out to someone kind of a conversation starter, like read this first and then let's talk. Sound like great reads. I know that I'm going to spend some time uh, deep in some of them. Can I tell you one more place to find my writings? Absolutely. That's All of those you have to pay for. You can find everything for free. Not everything. The books are not free, but a lot of the writings, the research findings in little tidbit form on my Psychology Today blog, The Polyamorists Next Door. And that sounds like a lot of fun. And we will have the uh, links to that on the show page. Great. And is there any other links that uh, we want to tell the listeners about? Um, Check out my website, elizabethchef.com. E-L-I-S. A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F dot com. It's like Chef the Cook, but with an S. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for sharing you. your valuable time with us uh, on the subject of poly. I am a practicing poly. The Beast is practicing in poly. And, you know, there is a lot more people out there when we start talking about it. We find people that have multiple relationships going or are non-monogamous. And I'm starting to see, I can't say it's the majority yet, but it's certainly a staggering number. Absolutely. Across generations. Everybody get out there and raise the flag and let us know you're out there. Thank you, Dr. Ela. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to episode 198 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. See you next week when we hear from Tariq and pick up play.